feel like I also usually don't trust people if they don't like olives. Cooking is essentially just another way for me to be submissive. I've lived in my apartment for five or six years and I've never turned the stove on. Tell me what you had for lunch and I'll tell you what it means. Welcome to Lunch Therapy. Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. My patient today is Dan Souza, who's the editor-in-chief of Cook's Illustrated Magazine, as well as a regular on one of my favorite TV cooking shows. Um, It's on PBS. It's called America's Test Kitchen. It's been on for 20 years. It's probably one of the most popular cooking shows on TV, and Dan is a regular on it, and I'm so excited to have him on the podcast today. But before we get to my interview with him, I wanted to let you know today may very well be the last episode of Lunch Therapy as you know it. Now, don't freak out. This isn't the end of the podcast, not by any stretch of the imagination. It's more of a rebranding and a rethinking of the pod. Um, I want to make it a little more casual, a little less formal, a little less psychoanalytical, and a little more conversational. So next week, the pod will be testing out a new format, um, a little bit more of a chattier format, and I'm going to be maybe calling it the Amateur Gourmet Pod, just to tie it more with my newsletter and all the other stuff I do. So if you want to chime in and let me know what you think and tell me what you want to hear more on the podcast, please subscribe to my newsletter, amateurgourmet.substack.com. This um, podcast is a free post on there, so you can actually leave comments underneath it and let me know what you're thinking. And if you want to hear my bonus episode, though, with Dan Souza today, also become a paid subscriber because that's going up tomorrow and I've got 10 really fun questions that I ask him. So lots of stuff going on, but I hope you enjoyed today's session with Dan Souza. All right, Dan. Well, thank you so much for coming on Lunch Therapy. I have to tell you, I am a huge fan of yours. I've been watching you on TV for a long time, so I'm excited to have you here. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm excited to be here as well. You know, it's funny, like America's Test Kitchen, like I came late to it in my life, just sort of through PBS. I don't know. Maybe I didn't like watch a lot of PBS at first, but now it's like my like comfort. Like I feel like it's like Linus and his blanket. Like if I don't watch America's <laughs> Test Kitchen, I won't be like, I won't feel safe. I don't know, but it's and all the characters on it. I feel like it's like a fictional show almost like that. These are characters like on the office or something. I mean, you, you get to know these people in real life. Are they just like they seem on TV? Well, it's so funny you say that because it's almost like the, it's almost the polar opposite of what you're talking about in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, fictional and, and that would almost require actors to be involved <laughs> because right. it really is like the most homegrown possible TV show or, or even any piece of media, because it's all people that started working at America's Test Kitchen or at Cook's Illustrated. And at some point in time, were either offered the chance to try out for the show or showed some interest, did a screen test. And then they were like, cool, you're good enough to try it. <laughs> and then, um, and then we're kind of, you know, thrown into it. And what I think that kind of leads to this beautiful authenticity, because the people who are, mm. you know, presenting recipes are the ones who had developed recipes here for years and years and years. And um, so I think some of us are better on camera than others. And we all try really hard to get better at it. But at the end of the day, it's just, um, it's really honest. It's a very honest take on kind of what we've done. Um, and I, it's funny that you you say the comfort aspect of it. It took me a while because I've been on the show now for, oh my God, I want to say nine years. Oh, eight, wow. That's a long eight, time. Nine yeah. years, something like that. And for the longest time, because, you know, it's it's PBS and it's um, it's a formula and and it's been incredibly popular forever. We're in our twenty second season now and it's 
you know, um, the most watched cooking show on, on public television and it competes with anything else out there. It's pretty wild for both America's test session and cook's country. Mm -hmm. And I was, but I was always kind of wondering like, what's the magic to it? Because like, I think it's a great show and I love instructional cooking. You know, I grew up with Julia and, uh, you know, all around and all that stuff. And I, and so I love that learning aspect of it. But I was like, is that really what it is? And I think it really boils down to you that it's, you know, it's not competition. It's not mm -hmm. this super high intensity thing. You learn a lot, but it's really nice people communicating with each other. And that gives me a certain sense of like hope for the future of our species, mm -hmm. you know, that it's like people still really value that and, and, and want that. Well, there's something so great about it, too, in that, like, unlike the Food Network, where you have, like, Ina Garten sharing her life, and you see her husband, and you see her house, and you see, like, her friends, it's what's so great about America's Test Kitchen is that it's like, we don't really know that much about the people on the test kitchen, like, and anytime they do like someone doles out a little something, like they say, like, my husband likes this. And you're like, oh my God, she's married. Like, it's just like a little like treasure. Um, but it's also what I think is so great about it is that it's like no nonsense. It's like they don't, America's test kitchen doesn't waste your time. It's sort of like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to show you how to make beef bourguignon. We're going to review some um, products and then we're going to do another recipe and then we're out. And it's like, great. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's not a time waster as opposed to like some other shows. I think that's a great point too. Yeah, we get right to it. I mean, that's kind of how we work here too. You know, like we're all friendly and stuff, but it's like, all right, what are we going to test today? How are we going to do it? Like very methodical. Yeah. And, um, but, but it is really fun. And uh, I don't know, just an inside peek. I don't know um, how many people realize this, but we film so 26 episodes of um, America's Test Kitchen and we film it all in a, like a three-week span um, mm -hmm. in the spring. So wow. I think people think it's kind of throughout the year that we're always doing this and <laughs> everyone everyone on the cast has like a full-time job basically. And then we stop and do like three weeks of TV, which is a fun break and you kind of get to mix it up. Um, but it's very, very condensed. And then, so a lot of times like, you know, my day-to-day my -day job is running uh, Cooks Illustrated and so I'm surprised when people are like, like, that's what they know me from is like TV show. Cause I'm like, I forgot that we filmed it already this year. You know, <laughs> there's a little sliver of, of time for a lot of us. You're ruining the illusion for me. I mean, I thought you all lived in that studio and like we're cooking every week of the year. Okay. This is... hanging out. I know. Sorry. I had to pop that for a little bit. <laughs> okay. Well, so I'm curious. Can you talk a little bit? We're going to get to your lunch soon. So don't worry. We're going to therapize you very soon. Okay. Um, but um, before we get to that, I wanted to know, like, can you talk about the job of being editor in chief of Cooks Illustrated and what that entails for you? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I started America's Test Kitchen about 12 years ago now. So I've been here a while mm -hmm. and I started and what I wanted to do was work on Cooks Illustrated specifically. I wanted to work on the magazine. Um, there was no opening on the magazine. So I started on the cookbook team mm -hmm. and um, I did that for a couple of years and then finally got my chance to move over. And, and it was just the best. I felt like I had my dream job because it was, you know, I was given time and resources to just go deep on food, which was the mm -hmm. thing that I loved the most and to run science experiments and, and then write about it. It was like kind of combined all these things that I, I was, you know, already fascinated with. Um, and then I, you know, kind of kept jumping around the company. I worked on a couple of uh, food science books, which was a blast. Launched a digital only brand called Cook Science that lasted about a year that was just like more experimental and, and fun like that um, with my work colleague, Molly Birnbaum. And then um, when that when that was kind of folded back into the company, I was offered the job of editor-in-chief of Cooks Illustrated. And if I thought I had my dream job before when I was test mm -hmm. coach, like this actually was the dream job. Uh, and so 
it's a really multifaceted gig and I, I really love so many aspects of it. It's the first job mm -hmm. I've had here where I, I'm not really hands-on food anymore. So I mm -hmm. was able to stick with it for a pretty long time. But if I'm hands-on food, it's because I'm on camera or, you know, doing some video or something. But um, I run a team that's uh, just the best team in the industry. And I'm not just saying that. Um, we're, we're a team of about 11 people now and about half cooks and then half pure editors. And um, so the test cooks, and they're all varying levels of experience, but most of them are really, really experienced and been with us for a while. They're in the kitchen testing as the majority of their job. So they're working mm -hmm. on a couple recipes at a time for the magazine, um, going super deep. And then, um, yeah, I get to work with the editors to craft these marvelous stories that um, really encapsulate all the testing. We have a journal, a more journalistic model now, which we, mm -hmm. we got into about over the last couple of years. So there's really rich storytelling. And then, you know, it's really on a brand level looking at, you know, how we're doing in print and what we're going to do in digital. Um, social media is a bigger part of my life than I ever expected it would be in, mm -hmm. in terms of what we're doing there. So it's really, it's really a brand kind of manager position, um, kind of overseeing it all. And then as a, a, a part of that too, is my YouTube show, uh, What's Eating mm -hmm. Dan, um, that is kind of, it's the distillation of Cooks Illustrated. And just like through a lens of, of YouTube, right? It's like all the same science, recipes, tips, tricks, everything that we do just like kind of put through that lens. And so that's a lot of what we're doing now is just figuring out like, you know, we have a growing uh, print subscriber uh, base, which is unbelievable in this time. Mm -hmm. And so we know we make a really great thing for that audience. And our job right now is to kind of figure out how to do that for, you know, the social media audience and the YouTube audience and TV audience and all that stuff. So it's a, it's a lot of challenging, but fun, really fun stuff to do. Well, it's interesting as Cooks Illustrated sits like in between two worlds in a way right now. I mean, you're sort of the transitional person to go from sort of this old school. I mean, even to the way that it looks like it has that kind of old timey feel, but you're pushing it in a new direction. So I guess were there certain things when you took over the job where people were like, you can't change that. Like that's got to stay the same versus things where they were like, okay, well, we'll change that. That's okay. You know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you ask our readership when I first took over, like nothing could be changed, right? Like it, mm -hmm. we, we survey our readership a lot and like everything was sacred. But for instance, when I took over, we had black and white photography in the magazine, which we had always mm -hmm. had. Um, and for food, it's pretty obvious why black and white photography is not great. But we actually surveyed people to find out like, if we change it, <laughs> if we change it, would you be upset? And plenty of people were like, yeah, but we're like, we're changing it. So, <laughs> so it was some really like seemingly fundamental aspects of it that were really easy in my mind to change. But then... It, it is, it's this kind of balancing act of keeping what's really special about it. And what I loved when I read it when I was young, you know, and then, but moving it into a um, kind of the next generation and recipe selection, like what recipes we covered is a really big difference. You know, it was, you know, back in the nineties and very much like a Western American canon and, and mm -hmm. covering roast chicken over and over and over again. Um, and now we have a much bigger, bigger expanse on, on global cuisines. Um, we use more freelancers now too, to get kind of first person connection to, to dishes, mm -hmm. but that's, that's been a big shift as well. I mean, the amazing thing is over the, yeah, the past three years, we've made a lot of shifts in the magazine. And when we ask our subscribers, um, it's, it's rated more highly than it was before. So it's great, which is amazing to see, you know, I mean, it was the right stuff to do anyway, but mm -hmm. I mean, you, you want to see that kind of there and, um, we're bringing in, you know, new, new readers, which is, which is really exciting as well. That's great. Um, all right. Well, before I just talk to, talk to you to death about America's Test Kitchen, I think it's time to learn more about you. So Dan, what did you have for lunch today? 
So uh, I'm in the office today and I had a really long meeting. So I knew I was going to like have to have something in there. And so I'm in Boston in the, in the seaport and right next to our building is um, a flower, which I'm not sure if oh, you, yeah. you know it. Yeah. So uh, I was just there because my partner Craig is directing a movie in Concord. Oh, and really? so, yeah, we spent the weekend in Boston and the hotel we stayed at, which was an old prison. I'm sure you've been there. Uh, the Liberty. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was right next to a flower. So we went there every morning and got breakfast. So, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. You were living a very Boston life then because, <laughs> because I think she has maybe 13 uh, uh, flowers now around the city, mm-hmm. but this, this one sandwich has just been kind of a classic, I think from day one. Um, and it's Joanne Chang is, is the, um, owner and operator. She's amazing. She's just like a force in Boston, you know, culinary scene, but also, um, you know, nationwide. And, um, so it, it's, it's kind of a little weird cause it was, it's her breakfast sandwich that I had for lunch. Mm-hmm. This makes sense when we talk a little bit more, but, um, but it's fabulous. It's a homemade roll. Like it's in between kind of a soft and, and harder roll. Like it's this kind of interesting mix of textures there. And then her real genius technique is she kind of pulls her eggs, you know, so she beats her eggs. Um, I think adds probably a little bit of milk or cream to it and then sets it as one big kind of huge rectangle of custard and then cuts out, um, perfect Uh. little squares of it. And I got to say they're like three quarters of an inch or more high. So it's like a big, a big, nice piece of, um, egg. That's like perfectly well seasoned. It's custardy, but sad. It's really, really nice. And then, um, it's got, uh, you know, a little bit of arugula. She has this kind of Dijonese, which is like mustard and mayo combination. Uh, you can get it with bacon and different things. So I got it with bacon and, uh, I got no tomato cause it's March in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but I added a little bit of ketchup to it and that's, that's oh. a, that's a pretty solid, um, go-to sandwich for me from, from flour and I'll eat it like any time of day. And you added the ketchup yourself or that you asked them to put the ketchup on it. Yeah. They don't have ketchup out. And I've run into this so many times where I'm like, <sighs> like for me, a breakfast <laughs> just has to have ketchup on it. So, huh. uh, so I asked him to put it on for me. Yeah. Okay. We've got a lot to explore here. This is good. I like this. Um, I feel like the ketchup is going to be its own line of conversation, but before we get to the ketchup, I, I feel like the first impression that I got in hearing you describe your lunch is how detail oriented you are, just the way you described the eggs, how it was in a large sheet, how her methodology or the custard, the cutting it out. And so I guess my first question would be, have you always been a detail oriented person? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say just, yes, I think that's, um, and I think that's probably a big part of why I ended up here and why I've stayed here and kind of, you know, why I make sense at this company is the details. Yeah, they've always mattered to me no matter what I was doing. And what I loved about food when I started really cooking and getting into it was like understanding how much like small changes to details could actually really impact um, a dish. And that at the end of the day, like it's all the details that actually make something amazing and delicious versus fine, right? Like you can have an egg sandwich that has basically all those same components that would be completely different and mm-hmm. not nearly as good um, without paying attention to those. So yeah, I mean, and I won't say it's like across the board that I'm detail oriented, but I would say definitely the the things that I love and I'm passionate about, I kind of go deep in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so, it's so interesting that the link between science Cooks Illustrated, you, I'm also thinking of Kenji, who I know you're doing an event with tonight. Is that tonight or tomorrow? Uh, tomorrow night. Yeah, he's coming here yeah. tomorrow to shoot some video and then we're doing the event tomorrow night. 
but when this this will air the day that it's uh, that event is happening in Boston. But I know Kenji because I used to work for Serious Eat, so we've known each other a long time. Did. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was you know I had a food blog back in 2004 when Ed started Serious Eat, so that was all around the same time. But what's so interesting to me is like Kenji sort of because I just spoke to him on my Instagram live. And he's sort of made like a transition from like seeking the best recipes, like this is the best and I'm seeking, you know, this is going to be the best chicken Parmesan of your life or whatever, to sort of saying that this is just what I like. This is sort of how I like to make it, but it's not necessarily the best. And and it seems like there's... There's something in there to me about the idea of science, which is an abs- looking for an absolute answer to something mm-hmm. versus cooking from the gut or cooking from instinct, which is not about achieving like the like ultimate version of something, but more about just pleasing yourself. And so as we're talking about all this and details and getting things right, I'm curious like where you sit in that divide about science versus instinct in cooking. Yeah, that's a really, I mean, I think that's the heart of, <clears throat> so much what we talk about in food for sure. Um, mm. and, uh, yeah. And I, I, I totally get where, where Kenji is now with his like mm. food and, and talking about it. Um, and I think we're in a, in a similar place, you know, I mean, I think he'll, I don't know if you've talked about this, but like, you know, we live in the world of, of Google and, mm-hmm. you know, SEO. And so, you know, slapping best on something online is going to naturally give it more, you know, more presence and more views. Oh and, yeah. I've been doing that for over a decade. So yes, yeah. I totally get that. Yeah. So you know that well. So I think there's something to be said for like the marketing of content that that mm-hmm. pulls people in that direction. But the way that I think about science and food, and I think this is the the quiet message that like so many of us food professional, food media professionals have been trying to get across forever is that like if recipes are great. Like we love mm-hmm. recipes, we talk in recipes, but like the thing we actually want to teach, and I think Cooks Illustrated is all about teaching. We just want to teach, we want to educate, is 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 technique. And it's mm-hmm. and, and it's getting off recipe is really like the end goal, right? It's getting to the point where you can look at five things in your fridge and you can can put it together in a way that's really, really nice. Or, you know, you're frying an egg and because you know you know, temperatures that it sets at and what's happening with it, like you can adjust on the fly when it starts to go off this way or that off that way. And so, um, yeah, so for me, you know, I think we can set any parameters. This is basically what we do with recipe development is like, what's our goal? Like, what do we want to achieve with this recipe? And then we can measure ourselves against that and say like, okay, we did the best version of X. Um, and we can use science to get us there in two ways, um, which I'll talk about in a second. But I think at the end of the day, like, what I want is we talk about these kind of back pocket recipes that we that we think we've really hit it out of the ballpark when it's a recipe that like you can just pull out like you're cooking for friends at an Airbnb and you're like, there's Brussels sprouts and you're like, I'm going to do this cold start technique where they, you know, go into a bunch of oil, mm-hmm. you know, fry slowly and then toss them a couple of times and they're done. And so those and that's a technique it's technically a recipe you can i just saw bridget do it yesterday with french oh, fries did? for her steak frites yeah she was making steak yeah. frites and she started the the fries in cold oil and slowly brought up the temperature and i was like that's going to be so greasy but she said that it actually takes in less oil that way yeah it does which is yes which is super cool finding and like i, I think that's really that's really it for me it's like well, that's what i love about being able to cook you know like why i wanted to get into cooking in the first place is that confidence in the kitchen to just basically say like, I've got this stuff and I know what to do. It might not end up being the best possible version of it, or mm-hmm. I want to try other, you know, cuisines and get outside of that. But like you have that core there. So, and I, so those kind of two, two layers of science, I think are 
the science that we use internally, um, mm -hmm. which is the scientific method for everything that we do. Um, and so that's, you know, controlling, uh, you know, controlling your variables, essentially like one test, you know, someone, um, Eric on my team today is working on a salmon riettes recipe. And so, um, she wanted to test like changing one ingredient in the poaching liquid for the salmon. And so there were just two samples. One of them, she had tweaked, um, with some lemon, the other one she hadn't, we tried them both and we talk about them. And so that method, that iterative kind of boring process, but you know, when you get down to it, it's not the exciting flash in the pan kind of cooking that can actually tell you real things. Like the, does this kind of thing actually work or matter or mm -hmm. does this matter or just, does this sound good? So I think that kind of science is, is key. And then the science that we teach, um, I, I, we always try to make sure that it's in the vein of empowering you as a cook, right? So mm -hmm. it's not just like, you know, my art reaction, because this is a word that we know it's, it's understanding that like, you know, you need protein and you need sugars. And, you know, if you want to do a huge boost on that, you can look to like anchovies for broken down proteins and you look for honey for like tiny sugars and brush that on a pork chop and get like incredible browning. So, mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's education enough so that people kind of use those things. So I think science for us is really all in the service of hopefully getting you to that point where you're a really confident cook that understands why things are happening and, um, and can move from that and, and cook and make what you, you know, make what you want. What's the best for you. Oh yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting. Cause like in that same episode with the steak free, Bridget was uh, cooking her steak in a metal pan. Uh, and I always use my cast iron skillet, but when I, when I saw her do that, I was like, huh, like maybe I'll like research using a metal pan for steak instead i mean is that a better thing to use for for steak like a metal like stainless steel versus like stainless steel yeah so so yeah it, it's it's complicated right there's like so many different variables involved but um so something like an all clad you know like a clad um, steel pan um they heat up really quickly and evenly and um so you can adjust a little bit more on the fly which is nice it also is a sticky pan like it mm -hmm. just by its nature and so if you're making a pan sauce and you're using a mm -hmm. your pan, you're going to get more fun on the bottom. You're going to be able to scrape that and deglaze that and build a sauce that tastes, tastes really great. You know, so if that's a consideration, you might want to go with, with an all clad pan. Um, also clean up, you might prefer that, you know, you can scrub the heck out of it without worrying about the seasoning. Um, mm -hmm. But cast iron, you, you know, takes forever to get hot. It heats unevenly, but once it's hot, it stays hot. So you can get a really, really nice sear. Um, you know, you might not get as much fun to kind of involve there, but they have, yeah, there's no, like, there's no one perfect pan. Like I love carbon steel as well, mm -hmm. but, um, and it just kind of depends on, you know, which variables matter the most to you and, and kind of what you're choosing. I could talk about all this stuff forever. I even have like a whole other line of questioning, but I'm going to take a sharp left now yep. and we're going to get to the ketchup, but this actually might be a good transition into the ketchup because I want to hear about your childhood and I want to hear about like where you grew up and your interest in science and your interest in food and how those two came together. Sure. Yep. And we'll try to weave ketchup into that. Because um, <laughs> I feel like ketchup, it feels like, like, like a kid thing, like putting ketchup on your food. Like, I don't know, not, that's not, I don't mean that like in a negative way. It's just like, it, make, it made me think of childhood and like putting, squirting ketchup all over your plate or your breakfast, you know? Yep. Totally. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so I, I grew up, uh, in, in kind of Northwestern Massachusetts and my, my mm -hmm. folks are still up there. Um, and my, my family kind of, you know, comes from like two different directions of like, my mom's side are like Mainers, like old time Mainers. And my dad's side um, uh, came over from the Azores. So my grandfather came over from the Azores when he was a kid. Um, so there's a kind of a Portuguese side there. 
Hmm. My last name is, um, is, is Portuguese. And so, um, one of the biggest things that I just like clicked with and fell in love with early on was seafood. Cause I kind mm-hmm. of, I saw it kind of from both perspectives, like the flaky white fish that you want to have in like chowder and then more of the mm-hmm. fish and stuff like that. And so, um, that's kind of been a through line for me and it's definitely my passion. Like is, is anything from the ocean. I love it the most and, and just yeah, I'm excited about it. So, um, you know, in terms of early, early getting into food and, and that kind of stuff, um, you know, there were, I, I have those stories like everyone else around, like first time at the stove doing something. And for mm-hmm. me, was, I think we had had like one of those spiral hams for um, Easter and I was super young, but I was like the next day I was like, can I you know, use the stove and skillet stuff like that? And I would just take, take a piece of it and just like put it in the skillet and just like seared it and just like mm-hmm. watched it sear and like flipped it. And I think I'd like totally dried it out, but like <laughs> caramelized those sugars and all that kind of stuff. And I was just like, it smelled good and it made me so hungry. And like, so some of those moments like that definitely clicked for me. Um, but it wasn't really until, you know, I went to college, went to high, through high school, college. And then when I got out of college, I like didn't know what I wanted to do. And I didn't really want to get a job job because uh, mm-hmm. who does uh, coming out of college? <laughs> Yeah, and I'm so, still trying to get one. I'm 43, so yeah, yeah. one day. <laughs> yeah, one day. When you grow up, you'll, you'll yeah. do that. But, um, but I, I took this teaching gig in, um, in Hungary. And it was basically, hmm. there. I got an email the last two weeks of school that was like, who wants to apply for this teaching position in this village in Hungary? And I, I applied and I got it. And I'm pretty sure I was the only one that applied. Um, but I was, <laughs> you know, didn't know that at the time. I was like, yeah, nice. And so I went and, and lived in this little village about, thousand people. It's probably about 30 minutes from the Romanian border. So kind of Southeastern, um, Hungary and was teaching English. One of my adult students was the chef at the local restaurant. So there's only one restaurant and they serve like school meals, but then also did like weddings and functions on the weekends. And I just asked them after one class, I was like, can I come hang out in the kitchen and kind of see what you do? And so it just started a year of like me going in on the weekends and, um, cooking like really like salt of the earth, like just rustic Hungarian food and mm-hmm. seeing it like all from scratch. And it just like was gu- like, goulash. Is that like the classic Hungarian dish? Yeah. Goulash, um, and pork, which is like a, a stew and, um, you know, schnitzel type rolled schnitzels and incredible mashed uh-huh. potatoes. It was just so much and paprik- paprikash. And it wasn't even like my type of food, right? It's like not seafood. It's not like, whatever. <laughs> but I just, yeah. I just fell for it. Like, um, you know, if there was a wedding that weekend, like the father of the bride would drop off like half a steer sometime earlier in the week. And, uh, Mishi, the chef would just like break it down and, you know, make stock with it. And it was just like scratch, scratch cooking. And so that really was where I was like clicked. I was like, okay, this is like the most exciting place to be. And I really love this. Um, and so when I got back, I know I worked a little bit in like advertising and was kind of just like, all right, that was fun. But I just couldn't get it out of my head that like I wanted to be working in food. And so um, I eventually quit. I started working in restaurants in Boston. And then um, uh, I love school and I like love learning in that sort of super mm-hmm. methodical way. So um, I went to culinary school. I went to the CIA mm-hmm. uh, um, in Hyde Park, New York. And, um, and that's where like the science and food thing really connected for me. And this was before they have classes now, which I think are fabulous and like technology and science and cooking, but they didn't have that back then. But it really was this, like, you had these old school French, Swiss, German chefs, like telling you what to do and they know what they're doing. 
but mm-hmm. they, they don't really explain why you're doing anything. And for me, I, ha- I struggle with doing any task that I don't really understand the why behind. Sure. You know? Because it just seems like, am I going to mess this up now or now? You know, it's like true in anything in life. And so, um, you know, like so many other people, like picking up on food and cooking, um, Harold McGee's Bible of, of food science, like that was so key for me to like, I could learn it in class and see how they did it traditionally, but then also understand why and just make those connections over and over to the point where I, when I, when I got out of culinary school, I worked for a brief period in Manhattan and then I was already looking for how do I combine this stuff? Um, you worked my, at restaurants in Manhattan or yeah, in media? I, I, yeah, I worked at, um, the Bernadette for wow. probably six months, which was a real dream of mine. Like I, again, for the seafood stuff, I was like, I want to go to the seafood Mecca, um, I mean, I'll be totally honest, one of the hardest, you know, six months of my life, like really, really tough working there. Where in the kitchen did you work? Were you working like the garde manger or like certain yep. areas? Yeah. So garde manger was my primary station. Um, there's also a, um, a private um, kitchen and dining area upstairs, mm-hmm. the salon, I called the salon. And so that was cool because I could take on more responsibility there, like myself and a few other uh, people at my level and, you know, some higher up chefs would run like a dinner for 60 people or something like that. And it was a more wow. set menu. And so I could be more involved in that. And they do a great job there of bouncing you around the kitchen. Like you'll, they'd be mm-hmm. like, Dan, over to hot apps and you run over there and you cook a couple of dishes. And they're like, back to garage and go over there. Oh so, my God. Yeah. Wow. That sounds really intense. I mean, I just have to ask and then we'll keep, I'll keep wanting you to hear what yep. you're talking about, but did that spoil fine dining for you? Or can you still enjoy going to like a nice restaurant without thinking about the people in the kitchen toiling away? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I, I think as I've grown up, I'm, I'm less and less of a fine dining person anyway, but yeah. no, I don't think so. I think it got me more excited for it in a way. Okay. It was like, I saw like what goes into it and like, you know, these sauces that were, you know, could be like $300 a quart based on everything that went into them and how they're hmm. reduced and, and, and perfected. It was just like, yeah, I thought it was really beautiful, but I also it was clear to me that like, I'm not the world's best line cook. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm okay at it, but I think these guys were like, you know, guys and women were just like really, really good at it. And, you know, I was like, I want to be doing something really close to this, like touching food and being involved in it. But like, I want to, I want to write about it and I want to, I want to do science, like all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. so it all traces back to like, my mom was a Cook's Illustrated subscriber and she had like the magazines like dog eared and recipes that she mm-hmm. loved. And I remember when I got, you know, at a certain age, I would just start reading them and like love the kitchen notes and ingredient notes. I just was like, I thought the magazine was so cool. And so when I was, you know, what's my next move? I was like, oh yeah, I think they're in Boston. And I came in and like staged for two days, like shadowed and kind of checked it all out. And I, I shadowed Charles Kelsey, who uh, now is the co-owner and, and co-chef at um, Cuddy's, the uh, sandwich place in Brookline Village, which is like best sandwich place. Yeah. Okay, it's so good. And I'm uh, coming back in a couple of weeks. So I'll, I'll, I'll go there for sure. Yeah. We should meet at Cuddy's and, uh, yeah. Okay. It's awesome. That. Charles is amazing. And, um, but, but his day was like, he was roasting like five tenderloins and then running up to his desk to write up something. And then he was also working on an alley go uh, potato recipe. So if he was doing that, I was like, this is your job. I was like, <laughs> I'm in, I'm in. So yeah, that's kind of the full picture of where, how I kind of got to this point. 
Well, it's interesting. As you're talking, I'm thinking a lot about like the idea of the mind and the body because, you know, you, you, you come across as like very brainy, but also like, but cooking is so physical. Mm-hmm. And, and even as you were talking about your journey, like into cooking, like that started in a restaurant, but it came from, you came from college, like, like, you know, I, I just think you seem to have a really interesting balance of, of being connected to, to your brain, but also connected to your like hands and like cooking, you know, has that always been true for you that like you're, you're, you've had a good balance in your life of like reading and athletics and, you know, just sort of doing both. <laughs> um, no, I wouldn't say that's true across the board. Um, when you said athletics, I was just like flashing through like my high school career. Yeah. I, I can't believe I used the word athletics. I feel like I'm like 90 years old. <laughs> I don't know why yeah. I said that. No, I mean, I always loved, I loved basketball and soccer and stuff, but like I was never, never the, the best at any of those. Um, and I would say, no, I think I'm, I'm more on the brainy side of things and it doesn't even always like translate into, uh, being good at the physical stuff either, like understanding, like how, like a sink works, you know, but then like, it's really challenging to actually like change things out and do that. Mm-hmm. But in cooking, I don't know, there's just something so, um, I mean, first of all, it's the kitchen in your house is the only place in pretty much everybody's house where, the, where you make anything. Like at mm-hmm. all, right? You could have someone. I was going to say the bathroom, but that's terrible. Sorry, that was terrible. <laughs> 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 that's true too. And you know, some people might be into crafting and then they have a wood shop, whatever. But like right. for the most part, you still place you make anything. And there's something so, I don't know. I think it just hits at a really deep level for people that you're like taking something and it, turning it into something else. And there's smells and, and you get to mm-hmm. eat your work and all this kind of stuff that like, that always drew me to the physical act of it too. Um, but there's been times in my life where I've gotten really far on the kind of the brainy side of it and like kind of lost my like mojo for cooking. Like I wasn't mm-hmm. cooking very much. And I think going into any industry can kind of do that to you, but, um, but gone in that way and then gone on vacation and like gotten more inspired and then like been in the kitchen constantly cooking and playing with stuff. And mm-hmm. I think it kind of ebbs and flows for me. Whereas I think for other people, um, you know, they're just like cook, 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 cook. And you know, like it's like this pure, that's where they want to be. Mm-hmm. But I like it from a lot of different angles. So I think it kind of changes for me. It's interesting because as you're talking, like I'm a bookworm, like I love to read. And I think my entree into the world of the kitchen, entree being a funny word choice, <laughs> um, was like reading books where there were recipes, but there was like a narrative, like, like Amanda Hester's Cooking for Mr. Latte was one of the first food books I read or like Calvin Trillin's books. But the idea that you can take like these words on the page and then translate that into a real thing that like you're holding and smelling and tasting was like remarkable to me. It was just like, oh, now I can like literally eat this thing that she's writing about. Um, and so it's like there is there is an interesting connection to me between like being in your head as a, as a cook or a food writer, and then actually manifesting the thing that's in your brain into a real thing that you're holding. So I think there's like a parallel there between like, you know, science and reading and literature and cooking. Definitely. Definitely. And I I love that. I love that kind of description you have there of reading someone's really poetic and you know, uh, personal words around something and then being able to like have that in front of you. Mm-hmm. That's like, that's, a, I don't know, that's pretty amazing technology if you think about it, you know, more, yeah. so, more so than like, you know, um, there's not a lot of that where you watch TV or something like that and actually, but you know, you have this thing in front of you. And, right. And you get I, to make it real. Yeah. Real. Yeah. Um, 
And I don't know. I also think at some point it's just like everybody loves food, you know? I mean, <laughs> I've met some people who are like, it's just people I only eat it for fuel or something like that. But for the most part, it's like, you know, most people you run into, they're like, you have my dream job. You have my dream job. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like <laughs> people just want to be working with food because it's, it's pleasure, you know, it's just so pleasurable. So I think that's drawn me to it a lot too. Well, one thing that's coming up for me and, and I'm just thinking of it now is the idea of perfectionism because with science, like there is a right answer. There is a correct amount of like droplets of whatever chemical you're adding to whatever you're making to get the exact thing that you're looking for. And I feel like perfectionism um, in the kitchen can be challenging because there can be things that happen that are outside of your control. Like the fish might be a little rotten without you realizing, or I don't know, just anything could happen. And I'm curious how you handle um, the idea of perfectionism in your own cooking and at work. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. I mean, it's something, perfectionism is something I, I is a struggle for me kind of in my life in general, because it's, it is, it's not a good thing, right? It's just not, <laughs> right. uh, because it's just, it, it's, it's unachievable. And I think, I think in the work environment, it can be pretty helpful for me because um, in terms of like guiding a team and if I can control it, that it's not like over the top, but it's like, we can achieve this. Like we can go after this. We have this, you know, and like details. Cause our magazine, our brand is all about details. And so like I pay attention to them all because that's, that's all part of it. But I think in a lot of ways it holds me back in my own hmm. personal cooking, uh, because I'd have all these like kind of platonic ideals in my mind of what this should be, or this should be. And I, I think I can hold back or whatever, just because I'm like, eh, I won't be able to do it quite right or something. So mm -hmm. I have to push myself a little bit more. And cookbooks are really helpful in that because, you know, if I pick up, you know, Munchie's, um, one of her books and, and try a Korean dish that um, I've never cooked before, obviously it's gonna be a great recipe and I'm gonna follow it and everything like that. But the chances of me kind of nailing it are gonna be so much less than something that I've made a million times. Mm. And so I think I use cookbooks to get me out of that perfectionist sort of mindset and to be like, or, you know, over time, like pleasantly surprised at what, what I get by moving outside of that realm, you know, hmm. to get, to get very therapy about it. But like, um, it's good data. That's like, okay, every time I step out of this and I try something that I'm not familiar with, um, I enjoy it. I feel more confident about that style of cooking or whatever technique I pick up there. Um, and so I think that works for me. I, I, I think it could probably work for a lot of people. Yeah. That, that's, I mean, it's funny because when you mentioned Mangchi, like I, I just got the um, Noma Guide to Fermentation, which oh. I find very intimidating. I mean, that is not how I cook at all. And I don't know if I'm going to make anything from it. But what's fascinating to me is this idea of like kimchi or like a fermented thing that's been fermented for centuries, if not longer, is now being looked at as being good for the gut biome. And like, it's sort of like so the right. science is, the science is coming after the fact, like it wasn't, it wasn't like food scientists were sitting in a lab in Korea, like let's concoct this thing that will be good for the gut. It's like, totally. no, it just happened. And so it makes me think a little bit about like traditions and like when you, when you said Mangshi, like that she's cooking from a traditional Korean background and sort of like making dishes that are part of a tradition, which aren't necessarily tested to maximize the ingredient or to, to use in the best possible way. It's just like, this is just how it's done. Um, yeah. and this is how we do things. So yeah, that, I mean, I don't really have a question there. I was just, I was just thinking that to me, well, I guess the idea of like cooking a traditional dish, like, do you ever encounter that at your work where you're making something where traditionally it's made a specific way, but scientifically that's not necessarily the ideal way. And then how do you handle that? Yeah. Well, I think to, to backing up to your, your 
kind of uh, statement around like a traditional dish and, you know, like what Manchi would be presenting. I think we often do this when, you know, if it's outside of like whatever, like traditional American cooking or say something like that, that we think um, authors from different backgrounds are kind of presenting something that's pretty pure to like some authentic traditional version. Mm-hmm. But I think in in reality, many are bringing to bear their own personal take on it mm-hmm. or testing and testing and figuring out what they want. But I think there's a perception of like, oh, you're getting like the real thing here. Uh, right, right. I don't that's, think, that's a good point. Yeah, which I don't think is always is always fair. And it's almost uh, maybe puts puts people in a smaller box than they kind of um, mm-hmm. should be because I think everyone's kind of bringing that to bear. Um, but, but to your question around like working with something and like finding science has like, you know, a way to do this, this way or that way, there's room for experimentation always, but I think you also have to be really true to, you know, when you're messing with, with, with a cuisine or with a dish, just to be really respectful of like what that dish is and what it means to a lot of people, Mm -hmm. you know? And so we, we, we walk that line a lot in terms of what we do. So, you know, and for instance, like making a decision like, you know, the using baking soda on meat, which is a um, kind of a traditional use in a lot of Chinese cooking to like tenderize it. We've taken that and applied it to like sloppy joes, you know, like we've, mm-hmm. we've said like that really works like, but it's like sloppy joes more tender. And uh, that felt like a really good use for, for that kind of technique. But yeah, I think it's, it's understanding what you're changing and then, and, 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 and why you're changing it and what you're actually doing. There's a lot to kind of figure out in that um, and not just mm-hmm. changing like, science tells you this or that and it's based on like personal preference you know well it raises a question about being editor-in-chief right now and assigning stories um where i imagine you're assigning stories about food from different cultures um or there's you mentioned it being more globalized now or trying to reach a wider audience and so is that something that you think about when you're assigning like a certain recipe to somebody of whether like that they can make these changes and that would be culturally acceptable if that if that's the right way to phrase that i don't know yeah definitely no we think about it so much i mean you know and we adopted a a, our kind of journalistic model um it's probably about three years ago at this point and um and so we really go to great lengths to just talk to a lot of people and get a lot of opinions and Mm -hmm. take dishes um we also have more of a pitch process than we ever used to so people are pitching what they want to work on um and then we're getting more freelancers involved for, you know, for cuisines that like within the knowledge group of like the team and even the company, we just don't have as much experience with. Um, and it doesn't feel like some like an area that we should kind of play in. Right. So, yeah, so it, it definitely is a huge factor in kind of deciding what we do and how we do it respectfully. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and make sure that like diverse voices are heard in our writing and, you know, in, in terms of what we're promoting, what we're doing. Well, um, there's a whole category that we haven't broached yet, which as a follower of yours, I know is a big category for you, which is tea. And <laughs> um, I see you making very like elaborate um, teas for yourself. And I'm curious, like, when did you start getting into tea and how did that happen for you? Yeah, I do. I, I, do, I definitely really love tea. It's a, it's a nice big part of my life. I was in culinary school and I learned, just kind of started to learn about the different types of tea. And I was like, this is fascinating. And like, tried a few. And then I had found this uh, producer and uh, website called In Pursuit of Tea. And Sebastian Beckwith launched it, I don't even know now, sometime in the 90s, probably, like 90s. Mm-hmm. And um, 
And so I was kind of reading about his story. And then I learned that he was living in this abandoned train depot in Cornwall Bridge, Connecticut, which was like an hour and a half from where I was in culinary school. And so I just wrote him. This is like the confidence of like young people where you're just like, <laughs> I'm just going to write this guy and see if I can go visit him. And I did. I wrote him. He's like, yeah, come on by. Wow. And so I went out. It was like this like drizzly day. And I got there and like the bottom floor was just like all tea where he was like setting up his like shipping uh, kind of business. And then upstairs was the apartment where he was living. And he was so generous. We basically sat down at this big tea ocean, which is one of those tables with um, drainage where you can do the Kung Fu style of tea brewing, where it's like multiple infusions. And there's, the, you know, there's not wastewater, but there's kind of wastewater in terms of like rinsing leaves. And so it's kind of a wet style of um, brewing the tea. So he was on one side, I was on the other. And he just brewed me like tea after tea of like, you know, we started with whites and we went into like Japanese greens and Chinese greens and then longs and puer. And like, by the end, I was just like blown away. Like, I just couldn't believe, I, I don't know, just I couldn't believe the, the complexity that came out of it and what a world there was that like I had never understood. And, um, and then since then, I've just been, yeah, super excited about it. And every trip I've taken to uh, East Asia, I've tried to like get to a tea plantation, see how mm. it's made. And um, it's been challenging in some places, but I, I did it in Korea. I did it in Vietnam. Um, I was able to do it a little bit in Thailand. And like, because, you know, in the US, um, I think Hawaii grows a little bit of tea, but there's like, you know, it's just not available. So I always wanted mm. to get closer to it. And now I buy from a bunch of different producers and just, I love the process of it, but I also just love the taste of it. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll get on my soapbox for a second round tea in this country where I did a video on tea and I was like, I'm not going to talk about health at all. This video is hmm. not about health because what I really hate is when tea is, that's the first way that it's described by, you know, the, just the general culture in the U S and like what's talked about in media and all that kind of stuff. And it's crazy to me because it really like loses the fact that like, it's just delicious. Like it is mm -hmm. just as delicious as wine, just as delicious as coffee. And, um, I want that to be like the top thing that people mm -hmm. talk about. So yeah, so that's, that's like kind of my approach to it is it's just absolutely delicious. And yeah, it has some like healthful benefits probably. When do you drink your tea? Like what time of day is it like first thing in the morning? Do you drink it with your meals at night? I mean, are you drinking it all day? Yeah, I probably stop around like, you know, sort of midday for the most part. Um, as I get older, like caffeine affects me more, mm -hmm. but in the, with the Kung Fu method, it's you know, it can be many things and it can be like a very more formal um, kind of ceremony, but in kind of, you know, sh easier, shorter versions of it is like re-wetting tea leaves um, mm -hmm. is kind of the, the concept behind it. And so, so I'll start with, you know, actually in like this kind of mug right here, this is now okay. water. I switched to water now, but like I'll put, um, you know, what I would normally you know, brew like a couple of scoops of the Lucy. How tea. would you, how would you describe that mug to our listeners? I'm trying to think, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> what this, is it? This is a, one of those Yeti mugs. That's like, I don't know, this is probably 20 ounces or something like that. It's like okay. indestructible. And this one is from America. So it says my name on it. Oh, it, that's cool. It's yeah. helpful. So I don't like lose it. But yeah, so it's, it's like a coffee trap, uh, traveling mug. Right. And so I've heard this described as like, uh, grandpa brewing, <laughs> um, which I, I think is, comes from kind of China and how, you know, and, and even like the cab drivers would, would brew tea this way where essentially like you're putting, um, a small amount of tea in the bottom and then 
adding your hot water to it. And I don't add too hot because I don't want it to infuse too fast. And then you drink it down and then you add more hot water and you drink it down. And so mm. over time, the, the first batch is obviously the most intensely flavored and then it kind of tapers off over time and the caffeine tapers off over time. So it's the kind of thing that like, it just works for a nice routine of like more caffeine and then you're still getting some nice flavor. Huh. And then that, at some point- that's you, cool. You could just pour cold water on it and you're going to get even less infusion. And so you could probably technically drink it all day. But I think, yeah, that's a nice way to consume it. And do you keep, is there something that preventing the leaves from going into your mouth? Like, is there something like a guard or something? Yeah. So this one doesn't have one, but I, I primarily brew long teas in here, okay. which you know, they usually start as like rolled little balls, but then they unfurl. And mm -hmm. this is usually enough to catch, catch them as they come out. It's just a normal kind of opening, but not always. And so there are times... When I'm in meetings that I like take a sip of it and then like <laughs> some of it gets like stuck in my lip and I'm like, it probably looks crazy to people, but I'm like pulling it out, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like it itch in my, in my cup or something like that. But, um, but yeah, I really, I really love it. And I wish more people would just, you know, um, get into it. Um, obviously so many people are, it's the world's second most popular beverage behind water. Mm -hmm. So it's not lacking, but, um, I just don't love the, the, the bigger conversation around tea in this country usually. Because it's always about health. I mean, it's okay. interesting because my thing with tea was that I had um, acid reflux and I went to a doctor and they were like, you should stop drinking coffee. You should go into tea. So that yep. was my entree. But I couldn't do it. I, I, I need coffee in the morning. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe. And I think it is psychological because it, it probably is the same amount of caffeine. But there's something about that like bitter coffee taste that wakes me up. So that's yeah. my own therapy session. Oh, yeah, I think that's totally true. I think there's more caffeine usually in coffee and and yeah, it's like you've had it forever. It was just, it just reminds you of this. So it is, it is a perk up. Um, I also love coffee. I think it's fabulous. Yeah. But yeah, like when people are like sick, but they're going for tea, you know, like those kinds of things. It's like, right. Oh, delicious. It's like, it's right. Like, Do it for, yeah. It's like they're, you're normally a beer drinker and you're like, but if I get sick, I'll go for wine. You know, like it's like, <laughs> that's <laughs> funny. Like that. Well, it, it makes me think about the idea of ritual um, and ritualized cooking and, and, you know, that, that tea, like even when you went to that guy's house or his place, like that there was a real ritual to it. And I'm curious if you have other rituals uh, when you cook and when you're approaching food at home, perhaps like if there are certain things that you always do in a certain way and, and whether it's like sharpening your knives or, you know, cleaning off your counter as you go or, you know, other things like that. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think, you know, when I'm lazy i think i have fewer and fewer rituals around cooking um mm -hmm. and it's just like you know i don't set myself up with prep and stuff like that as much and i just kind of go but when i have more ritual involved and i enjoy the process of cooking so much more is when i like you know i pull down my knees bowls from the cabinet and i make sure i have all my tools out and you know i get all the produce and things out in front of me and i have a you know a compost bowl and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and it's just satisfying like i just love that that kind of rhythm to it and you know you don't have to turn and run around a lot like you're just right there prepping and prepping and then because you cleared your mind a little bit of those other tasks like you could put some music on and enjoy that while you're doing it or you could have a conversation with someone who's there and enjoy it i find if you don't do that and you're trying to do these other things it always feels a little chaotic you know mm -hmm. um you're like because your, your brain's trying to do two things. You're like, wait a minute, am I messing something up and this, you know? So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think in my, you know, it's, it's almost like meditation in that, in that way where yeah, I feel that way too, even about doing the dishes for me is very meditative. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I think it's it, it, in terms of meditation too, like, you know, it's all about like starting over, like beginning again, if, if mm -hmm. you're, you know, if you're getting distracted and stuff like that. And so I find I, you know, I get super busy and all this kind of stuff and I get distracted from my ritual of cooking and my process of cooking. And I'll get a little frustrated with myself, but then I just say like, great, let's just start again. Like, let's just get back into that good rhythm of like really organizing my fridge in a way that feels good. And like, mm -hmm. you know, cause you're always going to fall off these good behaviors. Uh, but when they're working, they can definitely make you feel a lot better. And what do you make when you're just like sloppy and like, you know, just like in a mood where like, I don't feel like getting everything together and I'm hungover. I don't know. Just like, do you ever have a moment where you just like open up the fridge and just whip something up? Definitely. I have lots of moments like that. <laughs> I would say, I mean, <clears throat> I would say fried rice is a huge one mm -hmm. for me. And I've made some not good fried rices because I've just, it's been too much like clean out the drawer or whatever's in here and that kind of stuff. But for the most part, that's my go-to because I always have leftover rice and I always have little bits to season it. And I have all my condiments and, you know, sauces and stuff that make it good. Most recently, it's been kimchi fried rice. It's mm -hmm. just like, you know, I've got everything in the fridge. I've always got eggs and, um, and... It's just so good. You know, it's so comfortable. And do you do it with leftover rice that's already cold? Or do you make fresh rice and then fry that? Yeah, I've, I've done it with the with the fresh stuff too. Like if yeah. I you know, just made that pot that day, I will totally use that. Um, but for the most part, it's using leftover. Yeah. Uh, I usually have um, some short grain and some jasmine in there pretty much in rotation all the time. But kimchi fried rice is one that works particularly well with fresh rice because it it's a, it's a much wetter fried rice. And so it relies less on being able to like separate each grain. You know, you're adding some of the kimchi juice. Um, you're just adding a lot more liquid to it in general. So I find that works better. Whereas, you know, you, you need a little cooling and chilling time, I think, to get, you know, long grain rices to, to set up nicely for a, a drier, you know, Cantonese style fried rice or something right. like that. Well, every podcast, um, lunch therapy podcast begins with what did you have for lunch, but it ends with what are you having for dinner tonight? So I actually, I actually don't know what I'm having for dinner tonight. I'm meeting some friends to see a movie. Uh, and we're probably going to grab a bite beforehand. If I get my choice, we'll be going to, um, Shiki in, in, in Brookline. And it's this, um, long running, you know, family owned, um, Japanese restaurant. And it's great. They have sushi, but they just have such a broader menu and so many interesting um, dishes and lots of what I what I call like texturally challenging dishes um, mm -hmm. of like with like mountain yam and raw octopus and stuff like that. that like that place has taught me a lot about those. And um, now they're like some of my favorite dishes, but um, it's just so good. A little bit of sake and that would be my ideal, but I might not win. <laughs> Are your friends up for that kind of stuff? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I've, I've, um, I'm really lucky. I have friends who love food and are fabulous cooks and, yeah. um, yeah. So we definitely always eat well when we're together. I ate really well in Boston. I went to Pammy's. Have you been there? Oh yeah. I love Pammy's. Oh, that's great. So good. And just like, I loved the concept of it too. There was like three dishes for like $65, but you got to choose what you wanted. And it just it kind of was a fun way to approach the menu. I thought. Oh, totally. They're, they're, they're such rock stars and they killed it. I mean, pandemic, they, I mean, that's not like a takeout style restaurant, but they figured it out and made the switch. Um, and yeah, Pammy and Chris are amazing and we're super lucky to have them in, um, 
in in, in Cambridge in Boston. I, lo- I love that place. It's so cozy too. And yeah, it's good. Has a, has a great design. I also went somewhere. I'm totally blanking on the name, but it's like really hard to get into. And I went by myself, but you're never going to guess what it is because I'm I'm not giving you any information. Where, um, where, where about? It had it? like. Ugh, it was like Northwest, I want to say. I literally have no idea where I was. Um, and but they but they had like kebabs and they had like it was like a hummus made with like um, avocado. Like it was just like all kinds of. Here, mm-hmm. I'm gonna tell you what it, what it's called. You're gonna know. Yeah, I, I just I mean, have to look this up because it's driving me crazy. And then we'll we'll. Uh, uh, oh God, sorry, this is so unprofessional of me. Okay, I can't remember. Let's where, where I ate in Boston. I went to, oh, they had cornbread and it was called Sarma. Oh, Sarma. Oh my God. Sarma's amazing. Yeah. That was driving me crazy. Sorry. I just like had I, to I, look that up. I <laughs> almost, I almost went there when you were talking about the hummus. I haven't had the avocado one, I don't think. But um, yeah, that's one of um, uh, Anna Sartu's uh, restaurants. And she's, you know, she was, she's been cooking Turkish and Eastern Mediterranean food in Boston, like long before it was, you know, trendy and hot mm-hmm. and stuff like that at Oleana. And then she opened Sarma um, and she's got Sofra, which is this awesome little um, uh, cafe that, uh, you know, sells a lot of the same products that you can get, um, you know, in that area. And that's awesome. You, you chose some great spots. You did well. Thank you. Oh, I did. I did a lot of research. Um, all right. Well, Dan, if you are up for it, I hope you will stick around for a bonus 10 questions. They'll go by very quickly. Um, uh-huh. And for our, our paid subscribers that will get to listen to it tomorrow. But um, for those who are just listening now, thank you so much. Hi, this is me again. Dan cut off right there. So he did not say goodbye. He just cut off. So um, Tune in tomorrow by joining amateurgourmet.substack.com and you get to hear my 10 questions with Dan Souza. Those questions are really fun questions. I'll tell you what some of them are. What's the greatest trick cooking tip that you've learned in all of your time at America's Test Kitchen? What's the best piece of equipment that you've discovered working there? What do you eat when you don't feel like cooking? What's a tea that you recommend that's readily available? These are really good questions. So join us there and I'll see you back here tomorrow.